I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is The Mentor with Mark Burris. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Mentor. Today, I'm talking to two businesses selling luxury products for men. First up is Mark Ferguson. Now, Mark founded a company called Will Valor, which is a bespoke men's tailoring business. They design, tailor, and create suits and clothing items for men. Then later on, I'm going to talk to Patrick Kidd. He is the head of Patrick's Universal Exports. He started with a high-end men's hair salon in Bondi 13 years ago and now has a line of luxury hair and skincare products that are sold all over the world. Looking forward to this one. Let's get into it. Mark Ferguson, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Happy to be Mark's. here. <laughs> Mark, by two. Uh, mate, uh, you're, I can just look at you, you're a pretty tall dude, um, and I see on the uh, bio that you a, were a professional basketball player. Is that but, right? That's right, yeah. So six foot five and thin, uh, played basketball, and then realized in the corporate world I couldn't get anything to fit me. Right. So, it was serious? Yeah, yeah. So everything was short or baggy, and uh, that's why I started the company. Like it is, so uh, I guess what you're saying is off the rack to go and to buy something at David Jones or whatever, you couldn't get something to fit you. No, that's right. Um, so is that why you decided, is, is, have I got the word right, bespoke? Bespoke tailoring. Yeah. yeah, bespoke menswear. So there's a difference between off the rack and then there's made to measure and then there's bespoke. So bespoke is where you measure by hand, you actually fitted by hand, we, we cut the pattern by hand. And then we fit our clients out with what we call a skeleton base. So it's a calico fitting mold. And then we, in the final fitting, everything's handmade. And then in the final fitting, we fit them out by hand. So that's a bespoke process. And that's what you do. Yeah. That's what we do. Yeah. yeah. Made to measure is a little bit different where they actually put a jacket on you and they'll either lengthen the sleeve that little bit more um, or they'll adjust it slightly, but they, it doesn't really sit on the shoulders properly. They can't change the pitch or the sleeve pitch or anything like that. So Because it's already made. It's got a block. Yeah, it's yeah. already made in that space. And off the rack, everyone knows what off the rack is. It's probably well, not It never fit. fits me no. um, off the rack. Um, I've been lucky in my uh, last, since 2009, and I don't mind declaring this, um, but it's not the case anymore. But I, I was sponsored by Armani. Um, yeah. I was their ambassador in Australia, Giorgio Armani. So, so it was I, a black suit. Oh, I always, saw you in a black suit. Or all black the time. or blue, navy blue, um, or what? And shirts and uh, shoes, and ties, everything. But it was all. I had a uniform and uh, a uniform, and it was an Armani uniform, or made by Giorgio Armani. But it was an Armani uniform, which I basically got like I don't know, a heap of them. Yeah. Um, but it was always the same thing, um, and I never had to worry about that sort of stuff. But because they'd pretty much 
rebuild the whole suit for yeah. me. Did um, that make it easier for you? Because a lot of guys have decision fatigue and having that uniform makes it a lot uh, easier. Totally, totally, uh, t- totally. And, and the uniform was, wasn't determined by me. It was determined by the, the, the show. So yeah. the, the, the stylist yeah. at the yeah. show said, well, we're going to put him in black or dark blue um, yeah. or gray. Yeah. What, they're the three suits I always had. Yeah. Well, white shirt. Yeah. Uh, a solid tie to match the color of the suit. So yeah. whatever the suit yeah. was, that would be the tie. Yeah. Obviously black shoes. Yeah. And um, in a few except a watch, uh, like a white, one watch accessory and some cufflinks. That was yeah. sort of it. That was the deal. And uh, yeah, it made it easier. Um, it made it easy for me. And I still wear that sort of stuff because I go on the wardrobe. I don't, I, I can't make my mind up what I'm going to wear each well, day. Well, that's it. And that's what a lot of clients want. They want the decisions made for them. Yeah. So, you know, when you're a business person, you want to focus on business. You don't want to focus each morning or, or making decisions about, okay, what tie goes with which shirt and which shoes are you going to wear and that sort of thing. So a lot of fashionistas like that. They like having that choice. But the general business guy who's either a lawyer or a GM, he wants to go into the wardrobe and know that each product or each garment's versatile. So jackets and shirts and ties and pants all mix well together. And that's part of our job. And appropriate for the job. That's right. And appropriate for the job. And our, our job's really to understand the person. So understand who they are, what message they want to send. Uh, we look at their colors, their eye color, hair color, and complexion. Then we find out really who they are. So we ask them questions like, okay, what industry? Because different industries have different uniforms as such. You know, um, engineers, they like small checks. They like structure. So putting them in, let's say, a shirt with that is a little bit more creative, let's say a floral pattern or paisleys or something like that. And freak them out. Yeah, freak them out. It's not them. And they particularly hate it. So you can actually put industries into certain categories and you can – there's a matrix. That yeah, I was going to say that's quite interesting. So yeah. you could nearly build an algorithm um, around this stuff. That's right. And can you, uh, can you then digitize it, in other words – Put it on a put it online, and um, I go in there, and that you say to me, you ask me, you do a fact find, you, yep. you ask me twenty questions, you're not even measuring me, you ask me questions, you're just sort of saying, yep. complexion, you know, and you say these are six complexions, choose the one you are, eye yep. color, yep. twenty different eye colors, choose the one you are, hair yep. color, age, yep. Yep. height, yeah, you could even do it a little bit more simpler than that, and just take a photo and send it to you guys, send it. And, and you, then you guys analyze it. Analyze it. And, but also you can build a matrix around that. So the questions are sort of what industry, what level of industry are you in? So whether you're a director or an employee or and that sort of thing. And then where do you want to be? Um, there's, there's ways. But do you, do you actually do that? Yeah. Well, I haven't actually no, designed you. that yet, yeah. but I've, I'm in the middle of. But when you, when it. you see a customer now. When I see a customer, when I see the person, when I first meet them, I'm judging them just like yeah. everyone else is. Yeah, yeah. But you, you know? don't actually do an interview, Mark. You, 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 you actually do a, you, you make a judge, not a judgment, but like you make an assessment. I make an assessment, you know, I make assumptions, educated yeah. assumptions right. on who they are, what they do and that sort of thing. So from the very first time I meet them, how they shake my hand, the way they walk, their tone of voice, all those sorts of things point to who they are as a person, but also how confident they are. Um, then also I look at, you know, a man's shoes when he walks in. Um, whether they're polished, unpolished, you know, what jeans, chinos, shorts. Was it Catherine Eisman wrote a, a book called, you can tell a man by the shoes he wears, yeah, that uh, yeah. bestseller. Yeah, that's right. And so what Australian people girl. don't understand about shoes is that, um, I've, been, I've done many, many a talk where I've asked that question to women. Do you look at men's shoes first? And about 50% of the women say yes. And so what that message, what, if you've got a polished shoe, it actually sort of sends the message that you're. You look after yourself and also how you're treating her. Hmm. That's a bit controversial in one point of view, but 
but it's also it just it does actually send that message. But it, 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 oh, okay, that's so it's very interesting. That's your that's your skill base. You, t- yeah. you explained to me what your skill base. Is. Also, then you apply to the, your product. I wonder if um, at some stage, if you actually went to a, a, a software designer mm. um, and got them to go through a flowchart where they built a software program and you empowered people yep. to have this sort of same understanding you've got. That's right. Um, and we can do that because in the future, I actually don't think uh, men won't go to David Jones and that sort of thing. They'll go to either an import where they self-measure. and A they, what? A what? Import's a, a portal where you go in and you get measured, you get scanned and you get measured. Right. And Was it like a like an x-ray machine or something? Well, no, it's they do it for clothing now and some tailoring stores do it, but what men really need is the style advice. Not, the fit has to be perfect, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, and, and good. But what they really need is to be advised on what's the best colors for their complexion, what's the best style, what's the, how to balance and proportion, all that sort of thing. And, and that's what we'll be able to do with the matrix. That was so, so you're building this up? I, I've started it, yeah. yeah, yeah because I, mean, I guess you've got enough um, like, uh, examples of you know, what looks good on a person. Well, I mean, that's it. I mean, I've delivered – Hand delivered over twenty five thousand garments. Um, wow! I've got you know we've just had our ten thousandth order as a you know we've been everything's been hand delivered and hand picked. Um, when after I, I meet with a person and then um, we ask these questions, then I go away, I find the fabrics and then I present them. So I don't really, I don't really get them to look to, through too many, and I'll test boundaries. So everyone's got a style boundary, their own personal style that they're comfortable in as well. So I'll push them a little bit. If I get resistance or there's, it's a look on the face, I go, okay, too far, bring them back, and then, then we guide them into the so place like you, they want to be. What happens if, um, you know, you get your Florida style, the guy who wants a white pants, white shoes, and a big bright check jacket with a pink shirt? Easy, um, we can do that. Yeah, you, you can do it, but um, <laughs> do you ever feel confronted and sort of say, you know, hey, dude, uh, can I just give you a bit of a tip? Or how, I mean, how do you deliver that? Well, you just, it's about guidance. So just guiding them and telling them why. The real important thing is why, okay, why are you doing this? Um, and if that guy comes back, I go, okay, why do you want to wear that white pant, white shirt and that check jacket? Um, and once I, once I understand why and I tell them why they should or shouldn't, then um, I don't mind guys pushing the boundaries a little bit, but there's a fine line between stylish and gaudy. Yeah. So you've got to be on the stylish side, and it's a really fine line. We're, we're doing a – But a lot of gaudy people think they're on the stylish line. That's well, <laughs> they do, but um, it's only because they, there's only a couple of things wrong. They try to overcomplicate it as well. People don't understand when you're mixing patterns, it has to be the same scale. So let's say if you're mixing a, a stripe and a check, they have to be the same size. If you're mixing checks, they have to be different in scale, as different as possible. So – it's really our understanding of patterns, colors, combinations, and that sort of thing that allows us to give people the right advice. Now, I'm looking at you now, Mark. You're all styled up. I mean, you've got a – what do you call those things? Pocket chief. Pocket chief. Yeah. Pocket chief. Yeah. chief. You've got a, a, a double-breasted vest, yeah, uh, but with one yeah. button undone. Yeah. Which so is, one button is supposed to be undone. Yeah. So no, I, I, I notice that, but yeah. I mean, clearly that's part of the deal. Yeah. Um, you've got a uh, – Single-breasted. Single-breasted 2B, single-breasted with uh, how many buttons on the sleeve? Uh, we've got four, four working I know you keep all your buttons done up. Yeah, well, I, sometimes, I they sometimes, like, sometimes I let them undone. But I did notice you outside the studio that um, the length of your pants is a certain way. Um, it's, uh, it's, and then you've got the, 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 the great pair of the patent leathers. 
They're, they're actually high gloss. We wow. actually, We custom make shoes as well. So um, that's a high gloss. They look like patent leathers to me. Yeah, they're, 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 they're high gloss. Suit. No, the patent leathers just a little bit higher, and yeah, yeah. they're somewhat gaudy. Yeah, yeah. So what are you wearing with a dinner suit? Patent dinner leather? suit's yeah. perfect, mm. but day to day. Um, well, they get scratched. The well, good thing about high gloss is that you actually don't have to look after them as much as you would, let's say, a matte leather. Is that right? You just this morning I polished it with a, just a rag, and it was ready to go. Where where you're matte, you have to you know get the leather treatment in them and really treat them well. Um, it's part of the reason why I wear these high gloss. Um, we, yeah, we custom make these shoes. They're from Italian leather. They're handmade. Where do you make all this stuff? Your suits, um, your shirts, the, your ties, your shoes. The shoes are made in Armenia. We get them from a guy in Sydney here. His brother runs a factory in Armenia. Um, and the, the fabrics from Italy, England, Switzerland, France, all over. And then I've got a Savile Row, uh, bespoke tailor or train tailor in, based in Hong Kong. And so I've been... Doing this since uh, March 2005. Um, I've had a couple of tailors over there, but this guy really knows what he's doing. And it's a high-quality product. Um, we've compared it to Australian-made, tailor-made, um, and it's similar. It's very similar, but it just doesn't have this sort of price tag. Yeah, yeah. Our price tags are around that sort of two to three grand sort of mark. So for full suit? For full suit, yeah. Yep. It goes all the way up to five. I mean, we do a Xenia 15 mil mil. For about five grand. Um, Explain to the listeners what a 15 mil mil is. It's uh, the 15 mil mil is just, uh, the, it's just a very fine fabric. It's one of the finest fabrics from, from Xenia. It falls beautifully. It's got a silky feel. Um, and it's just 15 micron is basically what it means. That's, so, that's, that's 150 weeds per square inch or yeah, something, yeah, something yeah, like that's that. Right. Yeah. That's right. So um, it's only a seven ounce fabric. Um, it's not for the everyday wear hard wearing yeah. You know, it's for the delicate, more occasion-based. Or, you know, if you're an executive who has a big enough wardrobe, then you, you wear those every day and you just rotate them. Yeah, you know, yeah. like uh, Paul Keating used to wear things like that. Yeah, that's I mean, right. He used to dress that way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. I mean he was a total style, style master. He was. He was yeah, a he style master. He probably still is. I haven't seen him for years, but yeah. probably still is. Yeah. And it's – it's um, so I, I, I'm sort of um, intrigued, you know, like who would get into rag trade – today. I mean, that's a tough business. Okay? It is a tough business. Um, I got mates in the rag trade and, uh, you know, like they're, they're more retailers and you mm. know, they tell me how hard it is today. Mm. But what you're saying, what you're telling me is that, um, you're offering not really a product, more a service. It's service. Yeah. It's very much service orientated and the product just supports it. So like, I, you know, let's say I get something made by you. I know in, you know, all my measurements, you know, everything about mm. me. Um, and mm. then if I say, mate, I need a suit. Mm. Can you turn me around a suit in a week or whatever? You probably I can. can. Yeah, I can. I'm yeah. desperate. I got. I got a needed in a suit to wear yeah. somewhere, and I got. I want to impress yeah. the new girl yeah. or whatever right. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like like most men, we're fairly disorganised. I mean, you know, in you my know. case, well, but business people are. Yeah, well, we're so, a bit busy. And who, who's your biggest audience now? Like, where you get? Where, who are your clients? Where are they coming from? CEOs, GMs, time poor professionals. Um, but we also do a lot of entrepreneurs. So people that want that little bit different, a little bit funky. Yeah. Um, we have a few in the celebrity space as well. We just did um, the suit for Barry Hall for the AFL Hall yeah. of Fame. Um, so that's sort of a little bit different. It was a little bit edgy. Um, with, with Barry Hall's one, we, you know, he was known as a bit of an animal on the, sure on was. the field. So we did an animal print, but it was done with you know, style and um, so it didn't look gaudy. But, um, animal print, what, what on his, on his jacket? On his, his jacket, the whole jacket. Yeah. yeah. So it was a midnight blue and black animal print. Oh, cool. So when when you look at it under the red carpet lights, it just has that luster to it. Yeah, yeah. Not shining, anything like that. Um, 
you know, we do James Courtney, the V8 car uh, driver. We're doing a uh, jacket, or we've just done a jacket for Boy George for the finale. Oh, so, you know, we can, then that comes back to the understanding of people. Yeah, we just got yeah. a producer yeah, to show yeah. me a photograph of Barry. He looks unreal. That's yeah, probably yeah. the best ever look. How'd you get something to fit his arms? Well, he's a big boy. He, uh, you know, he's solid. You know, he's, I'm 6'5, he's probably about 6'6, six, six, and he's just solid. So, is the process, the fitting process, is um, we're the kind of people we'll alter something like a couple of mil to make sure that it fits fits really well. But people listening to the show now, I, I, I'm, I, I get intrigued why people go go off and do certain things in, in their lives, and um, I got a mate who's really a stylish guy, and um, from the day he was sort of able to read, he's always been reading books about great boats and great homes and great fabrics, and mm. we, he was always destined to do this. Yep. Um, were you always like that? No, no, <laughs> really. I was I was a basketball. I trained six hours a day. Um, from, you know, from, you know, 15 through to about 25, I was in basketball shorts. Um, I think I've naturally had an eye always. Um, I just never had the opportunity to produce it until, until after I retired. But it's uh, such a big deal. Like, um, you've gone from being a professional sportsman, basketballer to being, uh, uh, what do you, what's the word for you guys? Uh, well, I'm, I'm more of a, a designer. I'm yeah. not a tailor. No. So my, my understanding is how to measure, how to fit and how to style. Um, and it was a big leap. I mean, my basketball friends really, but it's you know, weird. Like it's not you know, weird, the, but I mean, it's, it's massive. It's, it's such a difference. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. when I said, oh, I'm doing suits, they're like, well, how are you doing suits? I said, well, I'm just going to do suits. Yeah. You so, know? But okay. How, how did that happen though? Like, I know you said that you, you found difficulty mm. getting stuff for yourself, yeah. but like, what was that sort of uh, bright light? It was moment? a moment. Um, I went on a basketball tour. I took a young group of uh, 17 year olds through to Hong Kong and China. And I got some tailor-made shirts made. I was on the bus for way yourself. back. Yeah, for myself. And I was on the bus way, on the way back to the airport. And I thought, you know what? I can do this. And um, that was September We just said there that I can make, get my suits made. Yeah. I'm going to find an audience. I'm yeah, going to find yeah. people who are going to get this. There's got to be other people like me. And um, I taught, taught myself um, a lot of family and friends for the first couple of years. Um, I, I mean, I started this business in Townsville, of all places. It's... Um, not the, you know. Are you from Townsville? Yeah, the suit capital of the world. No, 100%. So, it's too hot to wear a superstar. Pretty hot. So um, I had a good network up there through the basketball. So they uh, they worked with me and, you know, I learned how to I learned how to measure, how to alter, how to fit. Uh, I basically taught myself. Um, and then uh, I, when I was in Townsville, I actually did Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide. I went on. You know, I started doing that in 2007, 2008. Knocking on people's doors. Yeah. And wearing doing, the shoe leather, as I say. Yeah, that's right. And um, found an audience. Um, and then from there, I really understood that I wanted to expand and, and scale this. So I got a couple of contractors on and um, it didn't quite work out because they were part-time. Uh, and what I've realized over time is that you really have to be a lifer. Mm. What I mean by a lifer, you have to have so much passion for this to work through, you know, um, the learnings. It, t- it took me probably around about six years before I really believed I knew what I was doing. I can fit any body type. Um, and that's the kind of, you know, it just takes time to have that sort of experience. Um, so I've got a couple of guys now. I launched a franchise model uh, probably about four or five years ago now. And, um, and from there, um, what my biggest challenge is, is finding the right people to actually, to actually do this. And because it's not just about... <clears throat> Um, dressing people and style, you know, it's a cool industry, but it's also about 
uh, business nous and the ability to network and, and consistency. Consistency, the persistence, the dedication. So how do you find style. the? How, well, tell me about the franchise. So this is how you distribute your business model. Tell me, tell people who are listening now about how because you know like the biggest constraint on doing particularly well in a financial sense mm. in a service mm. is that you're constrained by the fact that you're only one person. That's right. And um, so one of the answers to those sorts of things is to franchise. Mm. And to franchise, you have to have it really well packaged yep. and it has to be stepped out, yep. manualized. Yep. So that it's nearly robotic, automatic. Because right. you're not going to get someone – the chance of getting someone who has the ability to step left to right, right to left like you – is unlikely. Mm. So you mm. need to automate it. That's right. So did you, how did you do that? Well, what I, I automated the marketing and the the operation manuals and how to measure, how to fit and that sort of thing. Um, so you build op, ops manuals? That's really important. Yeah, all the ops manuals and that sort of thing. What I, I didn't realize, um, I thought anyone could do it because I did it. Mm. Um, no, first mistake. That was my mistake. Yeah. Yeah, and only recently, only in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, I've really figured that out is that because I've continually tried to bring people in. Um, and so um, so I've done the ops manuals and the sales and that sort of thing. But what I've realized with the franchise, because they have to buy in and that sort of thing, they, they become a little bit more reliant on, hey, this is not. We've got skin in the game. Yeah, skin in the game and that sort of thing. And um, when there's, you know, resistance, um, because it's, you know, you, you've got to get out there and sell as well. Um, Could you give a territory? Uh, we don't do marketing. We, we do a marketing area. We don't do territories. So I've actually changed from the franchise model to more of a contractor model and licensee model in the last 12 months. Licensee in that they can operate on the, under your name, under yeah, your brand Yeah, that's right, name. under the brand. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, that brand name, it's a bit unusual. Uh, the brand name is uh, Will Valor. Will Valor, yeah. Will Valor. Will Vella. Just explain that to me. Is it someone's name? I mean, or... Well, it's the man we aspire to be, Mark. So yeah, explain to who Will Vella so, is. So Vella, Vella is about chivalry, being mm-hmm. a gentleman, knighthood and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And Will is about the will of a man, will to succeed. So when you put on a Will Vella suit, that's who you become. You become that, that aspirational man of who you want to be. Um, well, and it's all about confidence. Segment. That's a good segment of the market, aspirational. Yeah. Uh, it's, okay. a good, it's, a good, it's all about confidence. So when I put my armor on, yeah, I'm ready, right. I'm ready to do it. Is your suit of armor? Yeah. You know, I often say that when I, you know, when I was doing the show, TV show, I, I'm, I'm putting on my uniform, but I was putting on my armor, yeah, basically. That's it. So, w- Will Valor is uh, who came up with that name? Oh, I did. Two yeah. AM on a flight back from Hong Kong. Yep. Okay. With a bit of wine and chocolate. So let, let me just, get, no, I want to just take it back to someone. So we've got Will Valor. I understand mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. I, I, and obviously you've got to uh, build a brand more and more and more, and so yep. people know that what the, a Will Valor outfit will. Is is yep. what it, the message is and what yep. it stands for. Yep. You're building distribution. That's right. Franchise licensee, same yep. deal, yep. but through contractors. But you've in order that you've what well, you've manualised your business to make it That's sort right. of more automotive. Yep. And uh, that uh, there's less discretion being exercised because it's as we well maybe it's where people don't sense, where yes. people don't exercise discretion where they, they can fuck it up. You know, yeah, totally more or, business hurt your brand. That's right. So business wise, so we're very protective of our brand. They can be creative in a style and design sense as much as they want um, without being gaudy. It still has to be mm. stylish. But then then on the business side, yeah, we just try and keep them, just guide them down the right path. So what's your goal? What do you want to do with this? Uh, initially, it was worldwide domination, but now I just really want to focus on Australia. 
Um, I think there's a good, really good opportunity for our business within the, within the market. Um, I've been doing it 12 years now. We've got all the systems. We've got the platforms. We got we know how people to grow. Um, so you've systemized it. Yeah, that's you, right. You know where you can know where you can source all your suppliers. Yeah, that's that's you've got cemented, that nailed. Absolutely nailed. And um, it's you know people can earn really good money doing our Will Valor business. And then they're 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 seeing customers you wouldn't have the time to see because it's that's just right. as a time as a time cost management process. That's right. Um, and what you're doing is you're getting in a business and you're getting the clip of it because that's they're right. using your brand. That's right. What's, I just know something interesting that very right then it just reminded me of sports people why they are why they're so skilled, what they do. Our producer just over there just did a wind-up, and I've seen him do the wind-up many times, but you caught him peripherally in your vision. That's right. And I, I guess that's, that's, yeah, I guess that's yeah. what a basketballer, a skill of basketballer develops right. is that peripheral vision. That's right. And peripheral vision is very important in business. You've got to have, as a business owner, as mm. a proprietor, mm. you've got to have this peripheral vision. I don't mean in a physical sense, but mm. actually intellectually, you've got to know that if someone's messing with your brand as a contractor mm. or franchisee or a licensee, or um, markets change. That's right. So I have one more question for you. Um, yeah. How do you predict ch- market changes? I mean, because, you know, like s- fashion and style are slightly different or mm. quite, probably very different. Mm. Um, do you just jump in the – stay in the style space or do you play in the fashion space too? You've got to evolve. You really have to evolve. And it's not just in a fashion sense but also in a business sense, how you market yourself. And what the consumer's wanting as well, especially over the last couple of years, you really have to evolve and we had to differentiate ourselves from other competitors that were making noise. So they're at the lower end of the, the product um, and we just had to differentiate ourselves. But in a style sense, you just keep an eye on what's going on in the fashion world and you do that through the, the big fashion shows and you take bits and pieces that are going to be uh, applicable for the Australian But you're always market. watching. Always watching. Always, always watching and listening. I go, I go by feel, you know. I go by my gut a lot. And that's when I'm with a client, I, when I understand them, I'll flick through a fabrics and I'll get a feeling on a fabric and that'll be it. Can I ask you, well, I'll give you the opportunity to ask me something. I, I'm, I always give everyone an opportunity to ask me one question. So what yep. question would you like to ask me? Because I've been doing all the asking here. Well, um, I've always wanted you as a client, so I was hoping I might be able to make a suit for you. Absolutely. My, my, my Armani deal has just run out. How good is that? <laughs> no, I've been, I've been approached by lots of different people over the years, but, and, and it, look, to be frank with you, I'm probably, I'm not a, a styling sort of bloke because I'd rather run around in a tracksuit and t-shirt. But I think but, you have the brand that is, and that's what the yeah, Armani brand did for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what I saw you. I've always gone, I'd like to dress. Yeah, yeah, well, hundred percent. Yeah. Can you, do you, do I have to come and see you? You can come and no, see me. I'll come see you. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. we'll sort it. Yeah. No dramas. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm boring in that, uh, boring. But no, I already, so I've already and, got to know you. So it's, uh, so this, it's going to be good. This, this is me, you know, like blues and blues. I mean, we'll, in fact, we'll, I don't we'll normally wear a suit. push the boundary with you. We'll see. Yeah. yeah push it a little bit. <laughs> see how we go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I would be very happy to. And if you want to put up in the magazine or something, I'm happy to yeah, do that too. Yeah, that'd be great. Give you a bit of a kick along. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thanks, Mark. Well, very good. Welcome, mate. Next up, I'll talk to the founder of a luxury men's hair care range that's sold all over the world. Stay tuned. Okay, we've got our second guest here to the mentor, and his name is Patrick, and his business is called Patrick's. How are you? 
Welcome to me. Tour. Yeah. Um, now you started Patrick's as uh, it was a high-end men's hair salon back in 2004. How did how did you sort of get to do that? Like, were you, for example, a hairdresser or a barber or what's the deal? Yeah, so uh, well, you don't look I'll, like I'll, one. I mean, like, <laughs> you look like you yeah, play like footy or something. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, I was I was an electrician for a long time. I was an electrician for about ten years in Sydney, and then went over to the UK for um, about three years, and then came back to Sydney and. Excuse my French, but I'll stick it in shit haircuts. So I ended up. Yeah, um, is that really? That's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. That's it. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. I, I found at the time, this is a long time ago, but there was either basically barbershops or salons. And barbershops, you know, if you ask something current or cool, you'd get called whatever and basically shown the door. Um, or if you get, went into a women's salon, it was very sort of white and minimal and there was women's days. And, and you know, they didn't want to serve you because obviously it's a low end um, transaction for those guys and they can do women and charge a lot more. Um, and then, yeah, I hated being an electrician. I really hated it. And I sort of had a bit of a moment of clarity one morning and burst into tears. I was at about five o'clock in the morning and was like, I can't do this anymore. And my wife was, my wife, Amy was like, look, well, you know, you're the only one who can make a change. Like, let's do it. So I mortgaged a house that I, I bought when I was an apprentice. Um, and I'd got that for like 60 grand in, in Marimbula, um, which is sort of where I, near where I grew up. And that went up in value to about 200 grand, um, when I'd come back from London. And then, so I used 180 of it as, as of equity and made, got a business loan and then started up the, um, and it was Sydney's first sort of high end, you know, luxury barbershop. Um, and it was sort of, it wasn't like an old school barbershop. It was very minimal and it was all black. It was a bit like a boys club and we had a licensed bar and we were the first licensed hairdresser in Australia. For, you know, Who's in Bondi? Yeah, it's all in Bondi Junction. Um, and the thing took off. Whereabouts in the jungle? Um, it was right opposite Zara um, oh, at, yeah, yeah. at Westfields. Yeah, yeah. It had a, like a red Ducati in there and all that. And, you know, we had Lamborghinis in there. And, and the clientele was basically drug dealers to brain surgeons and everything in between. Because it was expensive. Yeah, It was yeah. an expensive haircut. Uh, and then basically that sort of, like we were trying to find a high-end men's product to sell into the store. And we couldn't find one anywhere around the world. So we thought, you know what, let's just, let's develop our own. Um, because I noticed all these guys were going across the road and spending, you know, three to $500 on, you know, Tom Ford fragrances and skincare and all that sort of stuff. And men's grooming was pumping at the time and it still is, um, still probably the, it's the fastest growing retail sector ever. Is that right? Yeah. It hasn't caught women's for revenue. Um, but it's, it's the fastest growing. Wow. So it pumps. So we knew that there was a huge sort of gap in the market for that sort of high end men's hair care, um, which hadn't well, what, been done. What do you mean, Patrick, what do you mean by... Men's hair care, like we're talking about, like oh, like so styling uh, products, um, shampoos, conditioners, and that Something sort of like stuff. Like the gel, yeah, like gels and to waxes. Get a quiff or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we we tried to develop it in Australia for a couple of years um, and couldn't get the formulations sort of up to speed. They were pretty pretty rubbish. Um, and no offense to anyone out there, but they just couldn't get it up to the to the level we needed it to be that sort of high end. What did you need to get to get? Did you go to um, product producers and ask yeah, them to produce your product? Yeah, so there's like lots of laboratories. <laughs> in Australia that make, um, you know, all sorts of things from skincare to hair care to everything else. Um, and they just, there's bigger, better companies out there in the world that make all the bigger stuff that have bigger budgets and better chemists. And, you know, they get the best of the best from the universities and stuff who are in that field. So eventually, uh, after two years, we just gave up on the Australian side of the manufacturing things. And um, we found a company in uh, Miami uh, who we'd found out that they'd done an 
equity deal with Tony and Guy about 20 years before. So all the big manufacturing companies, none of them will work with a startup generally. They won't answer your emails and they won't answer your phone calls. And you know, you know what it's like, there's one in a hundred businesses get through that sort of startup phase and then one in a hundred make it out of that. So they don't want to spend millions of dollars, you know, in research and development and formulating products and stuff to then never get it to market. Um, so, but because we found out they'd done an equity deal, um, my wife and I jumped on a plane and went over there and were lucky enough to, to meet the COO, uh, in the office who was downstairs. We didn't have a meeting or anything. Uh, went in. I love that. Yeah. Went in and sort of, I think he liked our accents. Um, my wife's English, so she has a funny accent as well compared to the, you know, for Americans. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, we sort of shook hands and got along good. And then about three hours later, um, they'd acquired 10% of the company. Um, in ex- oh, really? Yeah, and they gave us like lower minimum orders and all the stuff that sort of saves you in the long run. Yeah. Um, so rather than needing sort of 10 million bucks to kick it all off, we we did it with, you know, less than a mil probably. Um, but yeah, lower minimum orders. Um, they gave us free storage. Both the owners of the company went on our board. Um, they then hooked us up with packaging companies and stuff in the US and all these other people that have, you know, the, the relationships and the strategy behind um, getting a product to market. Uh, and then basically their first samples that they gave us back to the store in Bondi were better than pretty much anything that's on the market now. But did you, you, you obviously brief them? Yeah. So you we gave them like, want... yeah, we gave them benchmarks. Well, just like people listening. I mean, give, give us an example of a, pro, like what is a so product? So one like... of, say like a medium hole matte finish product, a, a, at the time, a good one on the market would have been say American Crew Fiber or maybe like Kevin Murphy's Knight Rider. Um, they're both pretty good uh, matte finish, medium hold products, which is a very common product. Which for means it's, it's something that holds your hair in place. Yeah, yeah. The matte yeah. finish is not shiny. No. Nah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it doesn't look like you've got a head full of product. And it's medium like, in that it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not, not too stiff. Not, it's not hard like a gel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. And it's not sort of like a wet look product like say right. a pomade or a, something like that. Um, so, and then, so I'd give them those products and then say, look, this is what I like about these products this is what I don't like about these products. And then they, the thing that we did a lot differently was they said to us, okay, well, what's your budget per fill? So usually you have a budget per fill per product. So fill the, being, yeah, the goo that's on the inside. Essentially. Right, right, right. Um, and they said generally, you know, a good product will be around 20 cents us per fill. Um, it costs you 20 cents to put the stuff yeah, in. Yeah. And I was like, look, there's, we don't have a budget. We're sort of after performance and we're, we're after to create something new um, and use sort of the best of everything. And they were like, so what are you, what are you talking like the, maybe 25? And I was like, don't worry about the budget. Let's not concern ourselves with the budget. Let's just create the best possible thing that you guys can get, you know, with the technology that's available at the time, um, with the best possible raw ingredients from all around the world. Um, and that was the first time those guys had ever had a brief like that. So the chemists loved it. It gave them like free reign to create like the best possible thing that they could, um, which they'd never got. Usually they're trying to create some sort of shit for 20 cents that really is hard. Um, whereas ours, they, you know, and they put a lot more effort into it because of the, the opportunity as well. Um, and then basically it costs a lot to do all that. So I had to, I had to raise capital. Um, the business in Bondi was making okay money, but I was spending it on stupid stuff like cars and clothes and watches <laughs> as you do when you're yeah. young and 20. Um, but yeah, so I, I went back to, to school and did like an advanced diploma of corporate finance and became a corporate advisor. Cause I sort of, I knew that no one could sell it as good as me. Um, and those guys take big chunks of whatever they raise you and all that. So I did that, took about a year. Um, and then through, we had like 25,000 guys on our database through the store. And because it was an expensive haircut, it was the perfect sort of target demo to raise capital. It was like crowdfunding. Yeah. Yeah. So we just, we, we did a night at the store and, um, raised 250 grand for 10% of the company, um, which got everything sort of rolling. And then it was basically just high net worth individuals that chucked in a couple of hundred grand each. Um, and then once we tested it, we tested it for about 
three or four years in the store. Um, when we had to put it into production, I had to do another capital raise. So I raised another half a mil at a $5 million valuation um, for another 10% of the company. And at that point, we were sort of getting more into the sophisticated investors and the, the guys from you know venture capital and private equity. Um, and we, we did that in like two days. It was really fast because it was such a good opportunity. We oversubscribed that one actually to about two and a half million. Um, so we sort of chose the guys that were more strategic to us that had been through that exit process and, and all that. And I guess the long, the, the story of it is because I took investors, I had to start with the end. So I had, I knew what our exit strategy was. I knew how I was going to create a liquidity point for these guys and what um, was and it? get their money back. So the I, best- mean, I think you should explain to people listening too, by the way. What's important, why it's important to be able to create a liquidity event or at least have a, a view on liquidity events for investors. Yeah. Well, the thing is most guys, they won't, they don't want to, you know, they'll get three to 5% from the bank. They might get 10 to 15% from shares, um, you know, and, and they're not really interested in dividends. I mean, who is? It's, it's going to take a long time to get to that point. And they don't want, you know, a couple of thousand bucks a year forever. It's not, not in their best interest. Um, they want to know if they give you a chunk of money, how they're going to get it back and when. And how um, much? Yeah, and how much? Yeah, and what sort of return it might be, or what kind of multiple? Um, and the thing is, with ours, it was at that point it was very high risk. You know, it was would would guys pay sixty bucks for a hairstyling product, and would they pay forty bucks for shampoo and conditioner? Which is, you know, it's by far the most expensive product in the world. Uh, and then when we hit the market, it just took off. You know, now it's the most popular product and the most reordered product on like sites like Mr. Porter and, you know, we're in the best retail stores all around the world, like, you know, Harrods and uh, Harvey Nichols and Selfridges and Liberty and, you know, Barney's and, you know, everywhere. We ha- we're not stocked in any salons. Um, so it's a very high-end product, but, you know, and the risk for investors was, would it work? Um, so I have to give those guys a big return on their investment. And they, they invested at a at a $2.5 million valuation in the, back in the day. And now we're looking at sort of between 250 and $500 million exit, like trade sale prices to, you know, L'Oreal, Unilever, Prestige. You know, How many uh, years have you been on this journey? Um, I've been working on it for about eight years in development, you know, um, and then it's been on the market for just over two. Um, and our investors came in about four years ago. Um, at, at that low valuation. And then we doubled it, obviously, when we went into production because it de-risked it to that point. Uh, and then we just did another capital raise about a year ago, a uh, year and a half ago, um, for 12 and a half mil um, for another 10% of the company. And we only raised 1.5 at that point because that's sort of all we needed. But then once we got into all these stores and everything, we actually realized that we could... So hair care is about 5% of the grooming market um, and skincare is about 75%. So it's a massive section, section of that men's grooming market. Um, so we actually just raised last week a couple of, uh, you know, another 500 grand just through sort of high net worth guys in, in the US that were more strategic. Um, if it's for skincare? Yeah, for the skincare opportunity. <clears throat> so yeah. you're not you doing hair products, you're doing skin products. Yeah, well. well, the thing was <clears throat> I, I never sort of pigeonholed the brand as a hair brand. Um, I never... Like if you look at any of our sort of marketing or advertising, we haven't done any advertising yet, but any of our social media, any of our pictures, we'll never have one haircut. We'll never have one guy. We don't have barber chairs or combs or scissors or anything like that. It's all about sort of watches and cars and accessories and the things that, you know, guys aspire to get Mm. and have the best quality, you know, the little indicators of how you're going in life sort of thing. Um, so for that reason, we didn't sort of pigeonhole it as a hair care brand. So now we're sort of venturing into other things. We did a few bits, a few bits of luggage, which, you know, sold out on Mr. Porter straight away, but you know, using different things and thinking about things differently and making sort of more high end products. Like with the bathroom bag we used, um, I went to, I was like, what's the best leather? So I went to Bentley and bought leather off those guys from the seats in the cars. Cause you know, it's designed to last for a long time. 
Uh, and then we bought Alcantara from Porsche um, for the inside of the bag, which sort of feels like suede, but it's waterproof and everything. So it's good for traveling. It's a toiletry bag. Yeah, yeah. And then we could put secret compartments and stuff in there for undesirables so people can hide them at airports and yeah, stuff. Cool know? stuff. Yeah, yeah. You can imagine the clientele we have. Hiding from their like, wives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hide a bit of cash, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so now we're with the skincare and there's a few other bits and pieces on the go, which I can't mention yet because I haven't wrapped up all the patents and stuff. But um yeah, it's gone, it's gone really well. And then last week I, I was actually in the U S and ended up meeting through a friend, um, the guys from L'Oreal, um, and they're really interested in the, so you can do the sale yourself. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. This, this is, this is the tricky part. I, you never want your consumers or, you know, anyone listening to think that I'm just trying to make money and sell, sell the company yeah. and that I don't care about you it. And, it. and the, yeah. the, the, the truth is that I've put. 10 years of my life into it and sleepless nights and you know, it's like yeah. you're an entrepreneur yourself. Um, it's way harder than everyone sort of imagines and it's not, you know, as glamorous as it seems or as glamorous as I make my Instagram scene. Um, <laughs> but the thing is I, because I took investors, I do have to create a liquidity point for those guys. Yeah, and the correct. most, the, the, the most sensible like liquidity point I can create rather than another capital raise. Um, a trade sale. Is a trade sale. Yeah. And we're not the sort of company that could probably go public. You know, we're not going to IPO or anything like that. Um, I mean, never say never, but it's probably not. The big guys are so big that that's our most likely exit. And the thing was that what I did back in the day, and again, I hope no one thinks that I'm just trying to grab money, but I pretended that I was working for say LVMH or a L'Oreal or a, you know, Unilever Prestige or one of these big companies. And it would be like, because they're public, they have to acquire to, to keep their share price going. They're generally not in the business of creating their own brands. Um, they have done generally in the past, but they're not very successful. So it's much easier for them just to acquire something. And they've got the, you know, they've got the networks to, to make a small brand huge overnight. So I sort of said to myself, well, look, if I was in that position, what would I want to buy? I'd probably want something in the luxe space because generally the margins are good. Um, and that's usually the sort of space that these guys trade in. Um, you'd want something that had the best distribution around the world, but not too much. Um, and then you'd want something that was really scalable, um, which ours is. And obviously with their budgets and their, where they can, you know, place the product, they can, the economies of scale, they can just, instead of making it for, you know, 30 bucks a unit or what we do, they they'll probably the make it for... Three. They can improve the margin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they've got teams of lawyers and they've got teams, you know, they've got accounting departments and, you know, we've built the company now up to sort of, it's probably at a $25 million valuation and there's three of us. Um, there's myself and Amy and Amanda, who's our COO. Um, and we've just used as much technology as we can get our hands on. So we have um, fulfillment systems and, you know, stock management systems. And, and then we have, you know, obviously have an accountant and a bookkeeper sort of on a a retainer that we pay each month and they come in and take care of all the finance side of things. What's the, what is the single biggest issue that you have to contend with today? Where you um, are? IP. IP is a big one for us. Um, because we were small and we'd never done it before back in the day. Um, you mean patents and protection of rights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if someone creates a formula for it and it's a hit, um, then it's sort of like, you know, who owns it? And then if L'Oreal buys us, you know, do they take the manufacturing in-house and take it away from our formulations company, which developed the thing and then leave them with sort of nothing. So I understand from both sides of point of view, but it's a very tricky conversation to have around IP. And generally, especially in America, it's very litigious. So yeah, it's, we sort of have to dance around those points. And then, you know, once you get to a level where you know what you're doing, it's easier. You can just put it in the opening contract and say, look guys, we want to own the formulas or we want to have a path to IP ownership. Mm. Um, that kind of thing. And we don't have any competition yet. Um, you know, and if there is, that's cool. It sort of creates more, 
you know, awareness market, around that yeah. section of the market. Um, traveling's hard. I've got a young family and, you know, my wife and little girl live in Bondi and I'm on the road three weeks of the year. Um, and then I guess the th- probably one of the things I wanted to ask you was like on, you know, if we do get to that trade sale point, it's sort of then, I know public companies trade for large multiples and stuff, but, you know, how do you go about getting the best possible, you know, multiple on the sale and, you know, knowing that other companies have sold for 250 million and, you know, ridiculous numbers like that. And then when we put ours next to theirs, we've got cooler branding, we've got a higher price point, you know, it's way more scalable than those well, what, what, The multiples, the multiples in your, I don't know the, the models in your industry, but the, the, when you say something selling, selling at 20, 250 million, um, is that like a six time, uh, uh, revenue or is it a three-time EBIT or what is it? Well, that's the thing for us because it's because of the strategy that we've run with to to sell the company in the long run. Um, it's never going to be a revenue multiple, so we need to be in the best stores around the world, um, but not too. So many. it's going to be strategic value, exactly. Yeah. So like when with Harrods, say Harrods is probably you know it's an amazing retailer to be with, but it's one store, so you're yep. not going to make millions of bucks selling yep. products through Harrods. Um, but I've done that with multiple stores all around the world that then hold the brand in a high And how about online? Point. Yeah, online something that we have only just really got into ourselves. In the beginning, we were pushing all our traffic to our retailers to build up the, the sell-through and the relationships with those guys. And in the last few months, um, Amy sort of set up a, you know, we gave the website a bit of a tart up and I still don't like it myself. We're in the process of redoing it at the moment. Um, but that we spent like you know, 150 bucks, I think it was on Instagram and Facebook ads. And, and we made two and a half grand in the first month. And I was like, whoa, that's like awesome. Let's put another 150 on the second month. Second month we did five grand, did another 150. The third month did 10 grand. Um, you know, so it's hugely, cause it's I actually, much more profitable for us. To answer, cause I think on answering your question, I mean, I think that, um, you need to give the trade sale organization two, two things, one in the process. I would never let anybody know that I'm not prepared to IPO it because I was would always run the pro, the the in parallel the two processes. So mm-hmm. I'd make it my trade sale buyers think that if I don't buy it, if they don't buy it, yeah, then you could IPO it, which yeah. means that you could raise a whole lot of money and start competing with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, that's a sort of a it's a general. Yeah, I that's run a good... I run them in parallel. Yeah, because you may not want to do an IPO. Um, because a whole lot of stuff comes with it. But at the end of the day, if you've got 250 million valuation on an IPO and you only got a $50 million valuation on a trade sale, I know which way you're going to go. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and yeah. you raise the money, you say, okay, well, the deal is I'm going to take them on now. Yeah. That's, that's one, one thing. That's process. Yeah. But the second thing is, uh, in terms of, um, your distribution, you, you just mentioned it, the strategic value of you. Um, one of the big st- strategic values today is the people at L'Oreal and all that, they have to operate through stores. Mm-hmm. They can't go competing with the stores. You're, you're new, fresh. You can actually, um, you know, you can have your stuff showcased in stores like Harrods, et cetera, but to get your real volumes up and to be able to pump through other product, mm. having that Patrick's as an online brand, because like a lot of people, men especially, like me, I won't go into Harrods and buy a men's product. The last thing I want to do is yeah, yeah. someone start yeah. fawning over yeah, me. That's the majority. Me. Yeah. yeah um, but, but if I knew there's, if I hear there's a good product out there, um, I probably would look at it on online and buy mm. it online. Yeah, yeah. So whereas L'Oreal um, has to be very careful of that. Um, L'Oreal could use you as a sort of bit like what CBA does with Bankwest. So CBA wants to try a new product out in lending. They try it out through Bankwest. 
Yeah, right. Because they can't do it through CBA. Because if it's if it's like let's say CBA wants to put a discount on their home loan rate. Yeah. CBA's already got a huge client base. Yeah. They have to offer it to everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they offer it through Bank West. Yeah. And if it works, they can determine whether they're actually going to go back and put it through CBA. Yeah, yeah. Or they just leave it at Bank West yeah. and bill Bank West as a new segment. Yeah. Without having to that's called poison the rest of yeah, the CBA yeah, exactly. business. Yeah, yeah. And iron out the kinks and everything. Correct. So yeah, yeah. a a cool, funky, uh strong brand with a good offering is valuable to the massive organizations because it allows them to push other things through it which they can't actually put through their own brand. Yeah. Because they're gonna poison all the distribution. Yeah. So I think that if you had an online pre- a big online presence and we're getting a lot of business through your online Someone like I shouldn't keep picking on L'Oreal because I don't even know them, but yeah, but someone <laughs> I don't like know them that well either. Yeah. Someone like that or Clarence <laughs> or whoever it is, yeah, they, yeah. they they might make a decision that look, this thing's strategically more valuable than it is just by giving it a multiple of its earnings, because we can actually pump other product through it. Not just I can can we make the product that you are currently selling cheaper because they have um, economies, but also because they have these guys have a presence which we L'Oreal would never try to establish because we're going to piss off all our distributors. Yeah. Harrods and everything yeah. around the world, right? Because they yeah. see that as um, competition. Yeah. But we, L'Oreal will be happy to operate through the Patrick's brand, which will not piss everybody off because we'll put our L'Oreal product in Harrods and we'll sell this new product we're going to promote through Patrick's. Yeah. And we'll call it Patrick's. Yeah, yeah. So that's really valuable to someone like L'Oreal and yeah. they'll pay strategic value f- for that. Yeah. I know that, but like – General Electric bought Wizard because they couldn't promote, they couldn't use the name General Electric in Australia to lend money, but they wouldn't lend money. Yeah. So they picked a brand called Wizard, which they use our distribution with a view to pump a whole lot of other products, like insurance, et cetera. Yeah, they yeah. didn't end up doing it, but that's what they, that was their objective. Yeah. Which is why they paid a strategic value for it. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Or a strategic multiple. So, and, you know, as I said, Bank West is a good example. And all the cigarette companies, Rothmans and uh, Philip Morris and like, Hundreds of brands. Yeah. And they try different things through different brands. Yeah. Because not, and today, no one brand can be all things to all people because democratization through the internet has made people say, no, no, I want this. Exactly. And so all of a sudden, a brand like your brand becomes very important as long as you deliver to do all the hard work, Laura. Because one of the things about those big organizations, they do (laughs) not, can't set up new businesses. Yeah. Yeah. They want to have these new things, but they yeah. recognize they cannot do it. Yeah. So what you need to find out is what does someone like L'Oreal want strategically yeah. that they won't do themselves? You sort of touched on it earlier. Yeah. But I think um, online distribution is probably a big one. Um, yeah, it's a huge one for us. And it's so much more profitable. Like I have to give totally. totals like a 50% margin at, at least. Um, so, you know, for us, if, if it's a $60 product, there's an extra $30 of revenue Great. in there. And you know what Laura will be thinking himself? The exact same issue. Yeah. They'd be saying, you know, we, you know, we make something for 20 cents. We're selling it for five bucks. Uh, five, uh, 50% of that $5 or 50% of the profit on the $5 goes to Harrods for our argument's yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the time we add up our marketing and our distribution and all yeah, the other yeah. money things, we're only yeah. making 30 cents. Yeah. How can we make more money? Everyone's thinking about how they, big organizations, bigger you get, how can I make more money out of my, more margin out of my product? Yeah. Because you're getting squeezed. Yeah. Um, because I can't grow. Yeah. I'm not going to grow. Uh, so your business offers two things, market share. Yeah. For men's luxury goods. Yeah. One. So there's, there's a quick growth one there. They'll pay you for that. They won't pay you overs. Yeah. Uh, how do I get overs? These guys give us a pathway, Patrick's, if you're online, gives us a pathway 
to making more margin per product. Yeah. And then on top of that, we, you know, L'Oreal, we can actually build, we can um, produce his product, Patrick's product, cheaper because we have economies of scale. Yeah. I mean, they're the three things. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, that give you a strategic value. Yeah. Over and above your market value. Yeah, yeah. And like the guy I met, we were joking around about the numbers and stuff like that. But, you know, you're talking huge numbers. Yeah. But only because they can make... My sort of joke to them was like, you know, give me 500 for it. I'll show you how it's worth a billion for you guys in year one, just with what you currently do. You don't have to change the recipe or anything. It's, um, you know, and they're huge astronomical numbers, which may never happen, but it's fun to talk about over a coffee. And, yeah, but you know, mate, if we actually do get there, mate, mate, even if it's, it's $75 million, yeah. $100 million, yeah. that's a great return for you. And it's investors. funny the different sort of, um, you know, the different companies, the way they, they structure or what they do with the brand. Like the, I spoke to the guys from Unilever. Um, and they've, they've actually got a new division called Unilever Prestige in London. Um, and they're, they're sort of more after the first five years, you know, the brand will end up in probably supermarkets and boots and things like that. Um, whereas the L Capital guys from LVMH were more like, nah, man, we wouldn't, wouldn't want you in for 10 to 20 years, um, and create brand longevity. And they're like, we're not in the business of buying cheap brands. We want something to sort of be the, the premier brand for a long time. Well, luxury's growing. Yeah. One, one of the yeah. few things in the world in retail that's growing is luxury. Yeah. And, um, you know, you pitch, I think you pitch yourself in a really good market. I don't understand men's, men's stuff, but I mean, I think luxury per se is a really good place yeah, to pitch yeah. yourself. And you, you got the buyers, yeah. you know, as you say, LVMH who owns like all the big yeah. brands and they own Louis Vuitton, Louis yeah, Vuitton, Louis Vuitton they? they own a lot of big brands, uh, yeah. but they're looking for other market segments of other market shares Exactly, and they're looking at other pathways to market, yeah. you know, online. and all these guys know each other. I mean, you talk to the Unilever yeah. guys and it quickly gets to the L'Oreal guys that you've spoken to them and you know, it's a, it's a little rat pack up the top and. But I mean, the, the good thing for us is, is like, what are they going to buy? What are they going to acquire? And there's nothing in the luxury men's space at, mm. at our, you know, in hair care. I would counsel you to, you know, when you start talking about those big numbers um, for sale, for a trade sale or even an IPO, I would counsel you at that stage to look at getting an investment bank yeah. to look after the process because um, those big organizations you're trying to sell to actually have big advisors themselves and big in-house people who used to not dealing with the proprietor, yep. used to dealing with a third party. Yeah, yeah. And there's just a whole lot of bullshit stuff that yeah. needs to be done. I know it's going to cost you money. You're going to have to pay, yeah. pay away something. But yeah. I would consider that when the time comes. Yeah. But I probably would also consider making some contact with the UBSs and the Goldman Sachs and all those big organizations that do this sort of stuff, even Macquarie. Um, and just sort of say, well, maybe what do I need to do in the next 12 to 18 months to start to prepare the business for this? Mm -hmm. What avenue should I be going down? They could do a bit of market research for you in the segment and say, well, the big buyers are looking for blah, yeah. and you spend your time and effort money on that. Yeah. That's, I, I would, yeah, yeah. as much as I, I don't like using, I, I don't like paying away a lot of money for people. I think I can do the same job. Yeah. But if they've done it before, I they, haven't. They know yeah, the market. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They know that they know the buyers, they know the sellers yeah. at this level. We're talking about luxury, we're talking about big dollars, big yeah. organizations. Yeah. Plus the strings. That's the thing that and they have. I mean, they have a language. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have it. You, you know? don't, you don't want to sign a contract and then realize you've just been hammered, you know? Well, yeah, and you always really you, try not you, to you know, <laughs> At least you know you got the best deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's because you yeah. never want to walk away saying yeah. shit. Could I got more money or something? And yeah, uh, yeah. you want to go the best deal. Yeah. And and you know they 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 take it. It takes five or six percent. That's the deal. Yeah, so yeah. That's going to cost yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. like you know, if you get the big numbers, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. And you can set them on incentives and all sorts of things. But I would definitely would be starting to 
at these numbers, I'd be starting to think about, okay, who's my investment banking advisor um, who can sort of say, well, what's the market look like of the buyers? What's the IPO market look like? And by the way, they're very good with a straight face. I mean, you know, you're, you've got an advisor, your advisor's talking to the purchaser and the advisor says to the purchaser, listen, if you don't buy this or to all you, all you people who are bidding, if you don't buy this, we're going to go IPO. Mm. Now, they're never going to believe you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But they will believe in advice because they're they're sons of bitches. They're all yeah yeah hard assed investment yeah. bank guys who used to screw on everybody. Yeah. You know that's how yeah. the industry works. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I they it's hard as a vendor they'll get you. Yeah. As a proprietor they will get you. Yeah. And uh, you want to distance yourself from that. Yeah. The, at this level. Yeah. Not not bringing investors in now. You've been doing a good job, but trade sale. Yeah, I'd, and I mean, I'd, I'd we're still a that. fair way off it. No, no, um, but start thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't want anyone to think that I was sort of like jumping the gun. Like no, only you know, half our products are out. And it stuff doesn't like matter. That. It doesn't matter yeah. if if L'Oreal owns your product, your product's still good, and you and you would. What you're the message you've got to give to people is, even if I sell, I'm staying on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they'll say that I want to be in some capacity. They're like, what do you want to do once you sell? I was like, well, I got the best job in the world. I get to travel. No, no, you got to say, I'm staying parties. on. I want to, yeah. I want to <laughs> ambassador yeah. this thing. I want to, I want to manage it through the processes yeah. to get it where it needs to get to. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. You, that's that's your answer. And I give a shit about it. You know, I care about the details. No, you want to be head of done. strategy or head of, you know, pro- product uh, builds or you know new products or yeah, product yeah. quality assurance or whatever. Make sure everyone uses Helvetica. <laughs> what's that? What's that? It's a font. <laughs> I get really gnarly on the details eh? <laughs> with the design. Well, but, you know, um, this is great. I mean, I, I, this is a great story. Like, t- seriously, from electrician to a hair care. Yeah, you can hair- imagine the amount of Bondi. flack I copped for um, going from an electrician to owning a hair salon. Well, mate, you're good. You, you got the last. You got the last laugh. Don't worry yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. here you are talking about now. And you went and did yourself a course, and you now got a business, and you now got patents, and you now got a business a product that's being sold around the world, and your your ambitions are to take it to, and you've got investors, you've got you've got had successful investment rounds, which is that's hard to do. You've yeah. done that on your own, yeah. And you're now looking at a trade sale and IPO, yeah. And our board's killer. I've got like you know some amazing people on our board. Well, you've done a great job. I mean, I this is typical Australian attitude. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Patrick, it's thanks very much. Oh, thanks, mate. Appreciate it. This has been The Mentor with Mark Burris. You can follow Mark on LinkedIn. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.